Welcome to Sentient Planet. So we don't know how Jimmy survived a fire that eviscerated everything, but he did survive. And what I came face to face with during that time was the reality of his experience. Everything that he knew was the truth about the way that the world worked was shattered. I'm Susan Woodward. Summertime, Reflections on a Vanishing Future, is one of the most important books I've read about non-human animal sentience. Author and philosopher Danielle Selemeyer started writing her book during the peak of the massive Australian bushfires of 2019-2020. Much of Danny's story is told through the eyes of the wild and domestic animals she's connected to, especially her beloved pig, Jimmy. In this interview, she shares a vivid retelling of living through the fires, what she learned, and the love for what we are losing that this experience evoked. Be sure to listen to the bonus episode. Danny reads a short chapter of Summertime exclusively for our listeners. Okay, let's get started. Danny, thank you so much for joining us on Sentient Planet today. I've read your book. Thank you for writing it. It's a deep and, for me, validating read. It's so honouring of the earth and her species, and it's also accessible. I mean, it's just so simply and beautifully written, so I just wanted to start with a thank you. There's multiple themes in your book. Human violence, the need for us to recognise and give up our dominion over the earth, being in truth, the necessity of looking reality, especially the climate crisis, right in the eye, here and now, and also you provoke the sense that we are all in this together. All the many beings on the planet are being deeply affected by this new age that we've well and truly entered and that many refer to now as the Anthropocene. I'm hoping we'll get to explore or at least touch upon all of these with you today, but let's start at the beginning, if that's okay. And I'm wondering if you could describe... Um, because I want to acknowledge the enormity of what you and the animals around you recently experienced in Australia. Could we start with a description of the place that you so love? The Australian bush on the south coast of New South Wales with its remnants of rainforest. You describe it beautifully in summertime. I just wonder if you could give us a sense of that place, its ecology and the animals who live there with you. Mm, thank you for starting that. And, and thank you for giving me the opportunity to be in conversation with you in the context of the broader work that you're doing on the sentience of the planet, I really appreciate it. Uh, and I am, I'm actually speaking from the land. So this is the unceded lands and waters of the Dharawal people. And uh, in starting to speak about the country, uh, I want to pay my respects to elders past and present, and in particular to express my gratitude uh, for all of the human and the more than human beings who have preserved and cared for this place uh, so that we were privileged enough to be able to inherit it in all of its magnificence. So 
the place uh, where I live is both a place and a community. So we think of this as an intentional multi-species community. Uh, we came to live here very much with the aspiration to be transformed by living truly with beings other than humans, uh, to live amongst them, to have uh, our worlds shaped by being part of their worlds. And that gives you, I come in with that intention rather than a physical description of the place, because I think it's important to understand the type of rich meshwork of life that is here. So often when we describe landscapes or, or animals, beings other than humans, we describe them as objects of our perception that we are in, even the word environment. It's as if there is something around us and we are the site of consciousness, as opposed to understanding that there's this multiplicity of consciousness and perspectives and that we're in that web of being. So that so it's very important to me that, you know, a human being here is speaking, but a human being who is describing being in relationship with other beings who are also in relationship with me. So after that preamble, the the south coast of New South Wales, which is uh, the southeast of Australia, was once rich with extraordinary temperate rainforest and through the type of animal agriculture that was primarily animal agriculture that was developed here a lot of the land was cleared was also cleared for developments for human settlements uh, for roads and other infrastructure but there are these remnants of extraordinary rainforest including rainforest that came back when the land rejuvenated itself after the cows were taken away. And so we live at the very top of a high valley, which is uh, hugged by escarpments. So escarpments may be a little bit of an odd word for people in North America, but they're the sheer cliffs. So there are the sheer cliffs and at the top of them is um, moves into more gum eucalypt forests but down as you come towards the river uh, that we live on there's that rich dark dank rainforest so at the bottom of the rainforest floor the humus which is the the, the becoming soil formed from the leaf litter and then uh, a variety of ferns and mosses and then moving up to the larger rainforest trees and of course, populated by all sorts of insect and fungi and bacterial and animal beings who live all through that rainforest, again, in this meshwork of interconnected life. And then perhaps one of the most extraordinary dimensions of this land is the bird life. Uh, the bird life is out of this world. And in fact, one of my kids on the weekend made a recording of a lyrebird. So we have a bird here called a lyrebird. Lyrebirds are uh, these quite large birds. The males have, have plume tails, not the colours of peacock, but that same type of plume. And lyrebirds are great mimics. And so if you go out into the forest and you hear a lyrebird, you may not realise it's a lyrebird. You might think that 
it's just a sequence of these different bird sounds. And this particular recording is magpies and currawongs and bellbirds and black cockatoos, but it's all the lyrebird. So those birds that I just mentioned are some of the birds who live here, rosellas, parrots, and these uh, occasionally we'll get 40, a mob of 40 black cockatoos flying overhead or coming down into the trees to eat grubs off the trees. So the bird life is extraordinarily rich. When people ask me to describe Australia, that's one of the things I always talk about is the bird life because we have more species of birds in Australia than anywhere else on the planet and it's one of the things I miss the most. And if you go out at dawn, if I open the door at dawn to let the dogs out, there's this rich tapestry of bird song that you hear. So that, that gives you some sense of the land. I guess the other thing that I would say is we live on the other side of two river crossings with no bridge. We are at the behest of the movement of the rain. So about 20 days a year uh, when we have normal rainfall, we are, it depends how you put it, we're either blissfully held here from the life that would call us elsewhere or we're stuck here. The river decides when we come and when we go. Yeah, I, I spent a lot of years living in the northern rivers and so I remember that experience as well on my father's property and it was one of the most fun times when, the, when it would rain so hard and the creek would become this roaring river and we're not going anywhere. Yeah, there's no way to get out or in. So, so thank you. Those are beautiful um, descriptions. And I remember a lot of those escarpments back home as well. They're very otherworldly. And your descriptions make me think of something very prehistoric, very ancient that we get to experience in Australia. That's true. And also ancient and untamed. Uh, when I first came here, I remember going out at night sometimes and how unwelcome I felt, how my sense of a, a world that was tamed and that was civilised and that was familiar uh, was really rocked by a place that, it's not that it's unwelcoming, it's actually, it, it's extremely feminine land. You feel very, very held here, but you also know your place. You know that you're, you're a visitor here. There is a sense of them having lived without us for millennia, for, you know, some of them for millions of years. And that is very evident here. It's one of the things that I most appreciate it because you used the word dominion before and we have structured the planet so that we have a sense of it being all there for us. And when you find yourself in a place where you realise that it's not there for us, I think it's a healthy reminder of, of our appropriate place. Yeah, and perhaps a, a frightening kind of reality for some humans to face. Yes, it, I mean, it displaces us from the place that we have settled into. But that displacement, I think, is precisely what we need to go through in order to replace ourselves as part of this meshwork rather than above it. Mm, and perhaps that displacement is what the Earth is up to at the moment. Mm.
So they've variously been called the Black Summer Fires, the Great Climate Fires, regardless. Um, the Australian bushfires in the summer of 2019-2020 were unprecedented. Perhaps you can help our listeners understand, Danny, the difference between what usually happens in bushfire-prone Australia and what happened during that season. Mm. Well, I can start with the name, the Black Summer Fires. These fires started at the beginning of September 2019, so the very beginning of spring, just at the border between winter and spring. So uh, that's the first aspect of these fires, that they lasted five, six months. So we know that the fire season is getting longer, but that fires were starting that early. I want to move away from this abstraction of the fire season is getting longer to what it's like for fires to begin at the beginning of September. For us, that's the beginning of spring. And when they began, not only were they burning in the country that traditionally burns because Australia is a fire-prone country, but in late September, they started to burn in the rainforests in the north, in the rainforests around Dorigo, the, the so-called Gondwana rainforests. Rainforests don't burn. And I'm using that, that absolute statement to try and, and capture these truths that we have about the world and the way in which those truths have been ripped apart by the climatic shifts that we're seeing. So here we have a rule, rainforests don't burn. The rainforests burnt. Not all of the rainforests, of course, but rainforests that have never burnt before burnt. So that's the second characteristic. The third is the extent of the fires. 18 million hectares are burnt. Uh, you'll have to translate that to acreage for, yeah. um, for American listeners, but 18 million. So, you know, the size of Belgium, I think, is roughly what they say that is the extent. I try, I try and give people an estimate like this, and maybe um, you could tell me if this is correct. I try and I'd say to people, imagine the whole of the West Coast from Mexico to Canada being on fire and losing half of your great forests in one season. I don't know where I picked up that we lost half of our East Coast eucalyptus forests, but that I did somewhere. Am I accurate? Um, I don't know exactly how much we lost as a percentage. You know, maybe that's the fourth characteristic is that, that the intensity of the fires. So there are certain plants in Australia that require fire in order to germinate. Right. And I want to make this first person instead of just a, a, an abstract description when we drove south on the 7th of January because we needed to go and collect our pig who had survived, mm -hmm. we drove through forests that, that it looked like a nuclear explosion had happened there. Everything was eviscerated. All that was left in certain forests was it looked like the colour of vomit. This dust was all that was left. You know, some of the forests, the canopy was burnt, some of them, the trunks were burnt, and some of them, everything was mm. burnt, nothing. And, and this was, you know, to live during those fires and to have that first person encounter with the intensity of the fires, 
The, some of the fires were 70 metres. That's 210 feet tall. Mm. That's the flames. That's not the plume. That's the flames. Yeah. If you put all that together, you know, some days there were hundreds of fires burning in Australia. So, you know, there's a little app you can get on your phone, the Fires Near Me app. And it has an icon over where there's a fire. It's a blue icon or a yellow icon or a red icon, depending on the, the gravity of the fire. And there were some days when I would open my Fires Near Me app and the entire state was covered. You couldn't even see where they were. They were overlapping. Mm -hmm. So if you bring that to the experiential scale, it was impossible to respond to the fires because we didn't have the infrastructure, we don't have the resources, and I'm just talking about responding them to care for human beings. You know, there were entire swathes of other forms of life, of forests and of animals, where there was no question that there could be any attempt to try and protect them. Firstly, because there is no fighting fires of that intensity. The idea that you can fight a 210 foot fire, which is at, you know, hundreds of degrees centigrade in temperature is a complete fantasy. And moving at such incredible velocity as well. Moving at, you know, I think 120 kilometres an hour than we're moving at. So the speed, the intensity, the extent, even in a country which has a culture of minimising drama. Australians are not very dramatic people. <laughs> Australians tend to dismiss, you know, oh, yes, that's just the way it is here. She'll be right, mate. That, that was not the experience. And, and the final thing I'll say about them is this was not just something happening in the bush. The cities, Sydney and Canberra and all of the smaller cities, Newcastle and Wollongong and so on, were blanketed in thick, hot smoke for weeks and weeks and weeks. So you would go outside if you were in the city and it had that apocalyptic feeling that sometimes you would hold your hand out in front of you and you couldn't see your hand in front of your face. And this is not where the fire ground is. This is in the biggest city in Australia. Yeah. This sense of the, the immediacy of the threat was an experience that all of us shared, irrespective of whether we were right on the front line, but even people who have traditionally been sheltered because they live in big cities did not have an experience of being sheltered. Yeah, just, I mean, if you were in the path of those things, there was no one and nothing could withstand it. And then if you were not directly in the range of the fire, then you, then the smoke was everywhere else. No escape for many wild and domestic animals. The descriptions you wrote in your book, in which you were just alluding to a little bit, the black-red sky and the ash rain. I mean, it really turned my guts into knots when I was reading that. You paint the picture in your book of, of a terror, really, that you and those around you experienced, and a terror that's likely coming for us all. At the same time, perhaps on a more positive note, your personal experience surely left no doubt about the truth of our interconnectedness to everything else. Can you speak to those things a little bit? Mm. So 
one of the outcomes or one of the effects for me of living through these fires was uh, a sense of the inadequacy of our language for our emotions. Uh, so we tend to have single words like fear or grief or sadness or rage or love as if those emotions come to us uh, in primary colours. Uh, but that, if that was ever the case, that was certainly not the case during the fires and it hasn't been the case for me since. And I say that because at the same time as I was saturated with terror, and I was saturated with terror, I don't think I slept for three weeks, mm. I felt an intensity of love for those with whom I share this planet that I also have never felt before. A sense of uh, at the same time as the impact of climate catastrophic events is radically uneven in its distribution. You know, human beings could take shelter as the fire approached, as we would hear on the radio over and over again. We can put wet blankets over ourselves. We can go to evacuation centres. We can hear the warnings, etc. So there is, a, a, of course, a sense in which humans are very different in all of this. But there's also a sense in which we're not that you had an encounter with the uncompromising. There was no arguing with these fires. There was no being a smart human being to get yourself out of that in the way that we're so accustomed to. We're so accustomed to our capacity to navigate our way out of sticky situations. And when I say we, I mean we in the privileged West. This is not a we of all human beings. Many human beings, particularly Indigenous peoples, but also, you know, peoples who have been facing, uh, whether it's the violence of colonialism or imperialism or climatic events through South Asia, have found themselves unable to negotiate the realities before. But for those of us who are lulled into this delusion of our capacity to always find a way out we were confronted that here we were with others unable to find our way out and one of the uh the effects that really surprised me because we're so accustomed to human beings really being only very concerned about human beings <laughs> was the devastation that people right across this country and I think right across the world felt at the extent of the killing and, and the suffering of beings other than humans. So, you know, immediately after the fires, just in my local town, there was a meeting called to put out feeding stations for those wild animals who had survived and, of course, now their habitat had been destroyed and there was nothing for them to eat or drink. At every one of those meetings, hundreds and hundreds of people went. I stopped at a warehouse that was full of food and other support services for animals that people had donated. This was during the fires. So I think this is my life's work to think about interconnectedness. But so many of us had an experience that 
these fires that I call our fires because these are the fires that we created, that humans created through the ways in which we have been living on this planet, that our fires had wrought such violence on other beings and that this planet that we're now it's starting to dawn on us that this is our common home and that the way in which we have lived on this planet as if we are separate as if what we do has no impact on us on future human generations or on others as if it is nothing but an infinite resource an infinite set of objects that we can deploy for our own pleasure, our own progress, our own desire, it became very clear that the finitude was here, right? The end of that was here, that this is the result of living that way. Now, of course, that narrative that weaves together a fossil fuel economy, a fantasy of endless progress, human dominion, the, the narrative that weaves that together with the fires was not clear to everybody. I'm not by any means saying that that's universe. It's not universally accepted. But even for those who, who wouldn't thread the story that way, the recognition of the destruction of our common home was very viscerally felt. Is it okay with you if I share how those fires affected me over here in the United States? I may or may not include this in the interview. Of course. I mean, you're not, you know, nothing I'm saying can be heard as if it's just a string of words. Yeah, I mean, I I just resonate so much with everything you just said. And it is all to do for me with the suffering of other beings and the other world that that propelled me into. I watched what was happening from afar for weeks and weeks and was in a state of grief like something I've never experienced in my entire life, more so than losing a parent, more so than the breakup of any kind of relationship, and it was incapacitating for me. And the thing that really pushed me over the edge was I remember being at work and I was reading some newspaper articles about what was happening and keeping up with it. And there was a, a small article, I think it was on the ABC's website, and it was a description of what volunteers who were going into the forests that had been decimated were experiencing when it was safe enough for them to enter. And I just, uh, I couldn't believe what I was reading and I couldn't believe what they were experiencing and then the PTSD and all the treatment that those folks who were so courageous had to then go and get the help that they needed to try and get through that trauma. I remember I just, I couldn't bear it and I walked into a conference room and shut the door privately and I didn't leave for three hours. 
and I just couldn't stand the injustice anymore. And there, there was build-ups, but that was the, the trigger point for me. So just, you know, back to your point, I think you know, not everybody um, was propelled into this new awareness. But I think anybody with an open heart certainly was. And so here we now are. You talk, really, go ahead. I just wanted to respond to what you said because I, my sense is that there is a point at which what we call knowledge enters one's body and it enters one's body in a way that takes hold of you such that you are no longer the same person and you no longer can but do what there is to be done. I don't have any empirical basis for knowing what it is that happens. But I have a guess. And my guess is it's it's something to do with, with love. It's to do with the love that we have for other beings who are now facing the reality of suffering, which is truly unbearable. I mean, that, the, the, those animals, that they didn't just die. They suffered over time. And, you know, we, we have all sorts of psychological mechanisms to allow us to hear that or to confront that and then to move on to whatever it is that we normally do. But when you sit with that reality, it imbues your life with a, with a different orientation to what it is to be a human on the planet. And the more we can invite people to what I, what I think of as tarrying with the reality of what is happening, not hurrying past it, not running back to our lives because we're habituated to doing that. But whether it's a forest that you love or those animals that you feel connected to or a place that carries some, some particular significance for you, to sit with what it means for it to suffer and to be destroyed it's very difficult. Mm -hmm. As you say, it is more painful because we're not just talking about one death or one loss. We're talking about it over and over and over again. And yet it's only by doing that. It's only by making it real. It's only by bringing it into the truth of your body not the truth of some abstract fact that you can quote to a newspaper but the truth of your body and that truth of your body is where you will throw yourself in front of that being so that it doesn't have to suffer like that. I think that is the transformative moment that we need to invite as many of us into as we possibly can. Beautifully said. Three billion animals at least, and that doesn't include insects and reptiles. 
Right, that perished in those fires and sometimes over many weeks and months. It's a mind-numbing number of individuals. You bring their story home through the death of Katie and the grief of Jimmy, her lifetime mate. Do you mind retelling a little of the story of these animal companions who are, of course, pigs? No, not at all. And it's very important that the story is not just told through my experience, but through Jimmy's experience of Katie's death. So a few years ago, I received an email asking me if I might give a home to two pigs. And I had never had anything to do with pigs and didn't know how to care for pigs. There's a bit of a sanctuary grapevine and someone had heard that we gave sanctuary to animals. And I said to my ever generous partner, do you think we could take a couple of pigs? And and he said, oh, you know, I don't see why not. And uh, Jimmy and Kate had been rescued from the factory farm floor when they were discarded as what's called wastage pigs, uh, little piglets who aren't worth the cost of feed to keep alive. And they were rescued by some animal activists and then brought up by a woman who gives sanctuary to animals. And she had had events in her life so that she couldn't keep them anymore and was looking for them to have a new home. So they came to live here and I discovered just how wondrous these creatures are, very emotionally complex, profoundly loving. I mean, there would be nothing I would recommend more for someone who has a sense of being unwanted in the world than to live with a pig, no matter what time, day or night, you go outside, they hear you, they come out with the most extraordinary excitement that you're there for them to greet and to hopefully touch noses with. Leaping forward, when the fires when it was evident that our home, our common home, was under threat, we decided that we needed to evacuate all of the domesticated animals. Previously, we had thought when we didn't understand the gravity of the fires, we had thought that we could put them into safe pastures. But because we're surrounded by bush, even if the fire had not gone through or had gone through in ways that they could escape, that with all of the bush burning, it would have taken the oxygen out of the air and everyone would have died. So I contacted the woman who had originally given uh, Jimmy and Kate sanctuary and she came, drove four hours and came and took them home until we were safe. Two days later, I received a text from her saying that they were under direct threat from the fire. Uh, but that she had everything ready, she had the float ready to put the pigs in and was going to ride her horses out. The next morning when we had emptied our house and my partner had driven a truck to Sydney with our belongings and I was here by myself with the dogs, all of the other animals had gone and I went outside to roll a gas bottle away from the house and when I came inside there was a message on my phone, a missed call, and I called back and M, as I call her in the book, picked up the phone and said, it's all gone. It's all gone. Everyone's gone. And so at that point, I assumed that both Jimmy and Kate were dead. 
The next day I received a text from her saying, I found Jimmy. And I assumed that that meant she had found Jimmy's body. But a few moments later, a very granulated uh, video, short video appeared on my phone of this huge pink being with black on his face coming from the blackened bush towards the camera, <laughs> making, making his Jimmy sounds. Wow. Just saying, I know, I know. So we don't know how Jimmy survived a fire that eviscerated everything, but he did survive. We were unable to bring him home for about a week because all of the roads were closed. Uh, So only emergency vehicles were allowed to go through. But eventually we drove down to collect him. And a week later, the blackened, charred ground was still hot from the fire. There were no fences left. Everything had been burnt. So he was off somewhere, but we called him and he came. And we drove for, you know, five hours, I think it took us to get home. We actually thought he was going to die on the way home because he was in so much trauma and he was really not well. But when we got him home, he seemed genuinely relieved to be home. He went into his mud bath and he drank and he ate something and he went into his house and he rested. And we felt, you know, in the midst of this horror that we were living through, that fires were still, you know, raging. But we felt the immediacy of relief of a being who we loved, who had survived. But the next morning when he woke up, he started, I believe that he was looking for Kate. He walked around, all around their world, as I call it. And he would look and he would smell and he would stop. And he did that for, I guess, a few hours. And then he went and lay down and he just stopped. He didn't eat. He didn't drink. He couldn't pee. He would occasionally move from one place to another and we would try and, you know, I would fill a syringe with water to try and get him to eat. I would offer him all different sorts of food. But he really withdrew from the world for almost two weeks. We thought we were going to lose him. And what I came face to face with during that time was the reality of his experience of what had happened. And this goes back to my very first comments about how it was important to me to describe this place not as an object of my experience but as a a site of multiple experiences. I got in my body because I love him so much. He had lived through an unimaginable trauma. I mean, fires of that intensity they blackened the sky. It becomes, it was eight o'clock in the morning when the fire came, but it would have been as black as the middle of the darkest night. The sound is as if you are underneath a 747 aeroplane. The smell would have been completely overwhelming to him. The smell of the smoke, he wouldn't have been able to breathe. He would have been choking at the heat on his body 
unimaginable. So he had lived through the world literally as if someone had taken the world and had thrown it onto the ground and everything that he knew was the truth about the way that the world worked was shattered. And he was alone. He was alone when he went through that. And then when he came out, the sister next to whom he had slept every day of his life was lying there black and burnt and dead. Mm. And he emerged from that. I mean, there is no human being who lives to tell that story or barely a human being from these fires. But he came out of those fires with a story to tell that he told through his body and through the way that he looked at us and through his not being able to eat and drink. And I felt like there was an obligation that he had given to me. It's as if he had said to me, you have a voice, you have a human voice. You need to convey my first person experience Mm. as well as you possibly can because we are here with you and we are also terrified and in grief and in loss and having a myriad emotions that we humans probably can't even guess because their emotional life is very different to our emotional life. But never before have I had such clarity about the complexity of his world and what it meant for his world to be shattered. And he's just one. And we come in through the one because we can somehow maybe grasp the one. We can't grasp the three billion. But multiply that three billion times And we're not even counting the trees or the reptiles or the insects, all of whom were having experiences. Of course, radically different experiences. I'm not equating their experience, but all of them were having an experience of what happened. And you would start to approach the meaning of those fires. My gosh, Danny, it's as if you and I received the same message through vastly different experiences, yours so up close and personal and mine through what I read that day, but it was the same message about needing to communicate on behalf of beings who don't have a voice in the way that we do. And I I would just like to acknowledge the fact that I feel that you've honoured that message from Jimmy in your writing. I mean, it's just, it's so powerful and I know it's touched a lot of hearts. Thank you. It never feels like enough. I'm sure. You know, the, the infinity of what is not being heard is a constant call. Yeah. I mean, I was going to ask you about what you can share about pig sentience, but I, I think you just did that so beautifully. You know, it's interesting. There's a new documentary that's um, just come out. I think Joaquin Phoenix is the producer. Gunda, have you seen that? I've just seen it and I'm actually speaking about it on a panel for the Sheffield Documentary Film Festival on Saturday night. Perfect. Yeah, I don't want to speak too much about the film for those who might be yet to see it. But when you were speaking before about your experience of grief 
and what it means to sit with that reality. After I watched that film, I again had that experience of what does it mean to take this seriously? What does it mean to stay present to the truth that this is not about animals other than humans who are experiencing the climate catastrophe. It's about animals other than humans who are experiencing the violence of of factory farming or of animal agriculture. But what does it mean to sit with the reality of their experience? And that film so poignantly conveys the emotional life of a pig mama. Yeah, sounds like it might be a hard one for me to watch. I'm sure it's going to trigger a lot of emotions again. Hi, it's Susan. Sentient Planet amplifies the voices of the species with whom we share the Earth and the humans dedicated to their urgent defence and preservation. We're providing additional content at patreon.com slash sentientplanet. I hope you'll check it out and consider supporting us for a few dollars a month. Thank you. You know, about the subject of human violence, in your book you talk about how we humans do violence every day without even thinking about it. And it seems to me like this is the crux of part of the problem, at least, our, our unawareness and our lack of presence in any given moment. And so with the fires, it seems like, you know, we talked a little bit about this, the suffering of animals was undeniable for many of us. And all around the world, you know, that some hearts were cracked open. It made me think in feeling that these hearts were being cracked open, that, wow, we're becoming so much more aware of the incredible sentient species on the planet that we share this time and space with just in time to witness their demise and departure. What are your thoughts on that? Do you get that sense as well? Do you agree that our collective awareness is shifting and what do you think it means for our future? I do agree. I also think that at the same time as there are many humans on the planet whose hearts are being cracked open, as you say, there is also a hardening of heart. And I think the way in which different people respond to fear of the future, uh, some of us respond by going in there and saying, let's be here together with the truth. And others respond by intensifying the fortification of their lives. And so we see the rise of eco-fascism at the same time as we see the rise of, of the heart openings. And again, to take that very big question down to a very intimate and immediate story, which I, I tell in the book, and I, I wrote this part of the book in situ. So there was a night when we weren't sure whether we were going to evacuate or not that night. The next day was going to be a catastrophic fire day and all of the domesticated animals had already left. Of course, the wild animals were still here and we decided for us, you know, humans, to evacuate before the night came in case the fire came during the middle of the night. My partner was outside trying to fix the sprinklers and I was sitting and I was watching the dusk fall and with that extraordinary light that we had during that fire, that softened orange light. And I was literally watching it disappear in front of me, like very literally, you know, the ferns 
until I could see the ferns no longer, the wombats until I could see the wombats no longer, the birds until I could see the birds no longer, and then all of the other ones who I was imagining were there, who I couldn't see. And it was such a literal experience of disappearance. And as I had that experience, because it was also because I thought, if this burns tomorrow, I will never see this again. They will not be here after tomorrow. The intensity of love that I felt in that moment was greater than any love that I have felt in my life, as great as the love that I felt when my daughter was born, that you are mine and I am yours and there is nothing that I wouldn't give to have you live. I felt that love with such intensity and because I'm a philosopher and so I tend to reflect on what I'm feeling while I'm feeling it, I was also aware of the tragedy, the tragedy that we realise again in this visceral way how much we love these other beings around us at the moment when their lives are hanging in the balance as they are. And a part of me that feels enormous frustration and fury at that, like, why are we this way? Why can't we be otherwise? And then I try and be a bit of a wiser self and I try and think we are this way. This is how we are. So what do we do with that? Rather than wishing that it were otherwise, my motto for myself these days is could have, would have, should have, and two bucks fifty will get you a bad cup of coffee. Right? So I'm trying not to go into I wish it was otherwise. It is thus for us. And so let's harness that. Let's harness that truth of how we are psychologically that somehow it is in the face of knowing the fragility, the vulnerability and the finitude of other beings that we can actually touch how much we want them to be. And if we can do that now, there will be more loss. There will be enormous loss. There is loss. There has been loss. That is unavoidable but how much loss there is and how this unfolds, how we care for each other, and I don't just mean the human each other, how we care for earth beings as this is unfolding, that is not determined. Mm -hmm. That's still up to us. That is still up to how we are going to be present. You know, I think you so so beautifully captured the synchronous arising of the reality of loss and the reality of love. And to to take that understanding of how we are and to say, and this is one of the reasons that truth is so important to me, because it's only when you're in the truth of loss that you are also in the truth of your love and your connection, and your desire for it to be otherwise. Wouldn't it be great if the package was otherwise, right? Wouldn't it be great if you could just have the love and not have the grief? But it ain't so. Well, maybe for some people it's not. For me it's, for me, it's so. For many people with whom I speak, it's so. And so I think 
to hold each other so that we can, you know, gingerly approach these truths. You know, you spoke about going into a room and crying for three hours. And I'm sure that three hours is a small fraction of the tears that you have shed, as is the case for anyone who comes near this. So we do have to be gentle and we have to hold each other and we have to also be kind to each other. You can't do it all the time. We also need to be connected with what's working and what we love and with fun and looking at the flowers when they're blooming, not just, you know, having your face on the cold face of the grief all the time, but so that we can be present to it because that is how we're going to do what, what it's possible to do. Danny, you've touched on um, so many of the other questions that I wanted to ask you about so beautifully. I would love to have you back on the show another time just to kind of check in with you on how you're learning to live in this world as you continue on your personal journey. And I'd love to know some more about the multi-species justice project that you're leading at the University of Sydney as well. So I hope that we can find some future time to delve into those topics a little bit. I really want to say that one of the gifts for me of writing this book has been the conversations that I've been able to have for me knowledge is also interdependent it's not just life that is entangled I come to my own understanding by virtue of being in this dialogical relationship with others um, including some human others <laughs> um, and so um, I'm very grateful that you're one of those human others because I've I've been able to think about this and also touch it emotionally in ways that I haven't before. So I'm, I'm very grateful. For more about today's guest, as well as actions for animal justice that you can take, please visit sentientplanetpodcast.com and join our pod. We're also on socials at Sentient Planet Podcast, and you can support our work on Patreon. Susan Woodward is your host and content producer. Our social media and outreach manager is Ari Simmons. Sound engineering by Liam Wilkinson. Art direction by Janet Grimwade. Intro music, The Spaces Between by Scott Buckley. All interstitial music by Stella Drone. Our love to all beings. Thanks for listening.